Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And as you're turning to it, I'm going to read these lyrics. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from uh, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's all say Amen. Amen. So reading this passage is a bit like watching hockey live from the nosebleed section. There's so much going on, and it's happening so quickly. And as soon as you think you have a handle on it, on where the puck is, suddenly it swooshes over to the other side of the rink, and the action's all happening there. And I enjoy watching the Sens or the 67s live, but watching it on TV helps me to follow the game more successfully. There's because we have a commentator. We have someone who's drawing arrows on the screen. We, we have someone who's doing the, the, you know, the close-ups of where the action is, followed by the wide camera angles. And somehow, the person on the camera seems to have a spiritual gift of, already, of always knowing where the puck is and even being, to anticip- being able to anticipate where the puck's going to be in the next few seconds. I don't have that spiritual gift. So what I'm going to do with this passage is I'm going to try to attempt to slow things down a bit to maybe point out a couple of things that you could easily miss and maybe we can get a couple of different camera angles and maybe I can even explain a little bit about the rules of play so that you can more uh, usefully engage with this amazing passage because it truly is an amazing passage. Uh, passage. And it would be really sad, it would be really terrible if we never engage with the beauty of this passage because we're so focused on going, who, what, where, where did they go? So that's not what I want us to be doing here today. Now we've taken a break from the book of Philippians for a few weeks, and I trust you found the mini series all in this together encouraging, but now we're ready to wade back in and to dig deeper and deeper into this premise, which is quit your flip-flopping, get joy in Jesus. Let's all say this together. Quit your flip-flopping, get joy in Jesus. One more time. Quit your flip-flopping, get joy in Jesus. And the last sermon 
on this series, which was now a month ago, gave us an insight into a joy that enables us and empowers us to suffer. But this message here today focuses us in on a joy that enables us to follow after Jesus, a joy that follows Jesus. And the first thing that we need to understand about this passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, is that it's structured into two halves, like, not like a hockey game, but like a soccer game. It's structured into two halves, verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 11. And the first part, the first half of it, is to do with how we act, our behavior. And the second part is about Jesus' example, so about how he acted so the first part is about what, or, or the second part is about what did Jesus do? And the first part is about what we should do. And we're going to look at the second part first because part two really gives us the basis or the groundwork for part one. It really gives us the reason why we should be seeking this joy that follows Jesus. Without verses six to 11, and if we only took verses one through five on their own, then you would have walked away hearing the pastor preach one of those, you're a Christian, so you should be nice and good sermons, which really does no one any good and kind of leaves you feeling like a failure yet again. So, verse 6. In some translations of the Bible, maybe in yours, particularly if you have a New International Version, it's very clear that from verse 6 onwards... um, It's something special. It's set out to look like a poem or a song or a hymn. And the reason why it's set out to look like a poem or a song or a hymn is that it is a hymn. It's an old hymn. It's an old hymn that was circulating the early church. And it must have been really popular because Paul quotes it in its entirety here. And this hymn is a summary of Jesus' life put to music. We don't have the melody, but this was a summary of Jesus' life put to music, a hymn. And so we start off in verse 6 with Jesus being introduced as being in the form of God. And in English, this phrase loses some of its power, some of its oomph, because it makes it seem like Jesus was kind of like God, but not really. But the New International Version gets it maybe stronger, because it says, in very nature God, in the very nature God, in very nature God. And this one sentence, Jesus being in very nature God, knocks on its head any nonsense that Jesus was just a good teacher or just a nice man. Here it's clearly written that Jesus, in his very essence, in his very nature, was God. And we need to grasp this, because it's only as we grasp this truth that we can feel the emotional roller coaster of the next few verses. We need to understand that prior to his 33 years on earth, Jesus pre existed for eternity as God. And there are people who've, who've argued back and forth about what is the exact identity and nature of Jesus. There was this guy called Arius of Alexandria who said that Jesus was less than God, he was different from God. Whereas this guy who also lived in Alexandria at the same time called Athanasius, he insisted that Jesus was 
one with God from all eternity. So you have Arius who said Jesus isn't God, and you have Athanasius who said no, Jesus is God from all eternity. And these two guys really got into it over this particular issue, whether Jesus was God or not. And the theological gloves came off as they laid into each other over this. But Athanasius won, which is good. And he made this point. He said that if Jesus is not God, then he cannot be our saviour. And so what we have to understand here is that this verse is more than just passing interest to us. It's of extreme importance whether Jesus is God or not. Because if Jesus isn't God, then the followers of Jesus are not saved and all of us are still in our sins. So here, in just five words, being in very nature, God explains that Jesus existed for eternity and that he was God. Now John chapter 1 verse 1 puts it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in in the book of Colossians, we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So this is saying that Jesus was pre-existent. That he was always there as God. The son in the trinity which makes this next verse in, Ephesians, in, 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 in Philippians chapter 2 somewhat shocking for us to hear. He did not count equality with God a thing, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but made himself nothing. Once again, how can we lift these words off the page so it's not just something we're reading, but it's something we can engage with Uh, with our minds and our hearts how can we wrap our minds around this truth that's being shown here that the co-creator of the universe eternal god made himself nothing he emptied himself all that was his by right of his very nature he gave up the glory and the power that he could create worlds from nothing the never-ending praise of the armies of heaven, the, the, the knowledge that there was no limit to his power, that he could literally do anything he wanted in accordance with his character. I'm struggling to find words to explain how, how huge a deal verse 6 is of Philippians chapter 2. All of this, being in very nature God, on the same level as God, being God himself, he, he abandoned. He, he, he cast it off. He laid it aside. He emptied himself. And what does that even mean for God to empty himself? Think about it. What does it mean for God to make himself nothing? This week, I had to sit for 30 minutes in an MRI machine. And it was a tight fit. And I climbed into that MRI machine, and I, a fairly fit man in his 30s who has full use of his limbs, was told to lie still. And I gave up what was in my power, and I lay still. 
This may be a very, very silly example, but it can help us dip the tiniest tips of our toes into this truth of, and, and this mystery of God emptying himself, of God making himself nothing, of God giving up his rights. Here's a better example. Imagine if the queen was touring a faraway country and in the middle of a slum, as she's driving through in her Rolls Royce, she tells the driver, stop. And then after he stopped, she takes off her crown and her nice coat and she starts to walk into the filth and the stink of the slum. Um, Your Majesty... Her attendants call her, but she carries on going resolutely forwards, deeper and deeper into the quagmire of humanity and feces and mud and dirt. She strides on, and her shoes get stuck in the sloppy mess, and so she carries on without her shoes. And the residents of the slum don't know what to make of this. In fact, most of them don't even recognize her. And after a while, Queen Elizabeth finds whatever passes for a real estate agent in this slum, and she rents a one-room hovel with a dirt floor and a leaky iron roof. The queen is still queen. She's not, she, she's not abdicated, but she's emptied herself. She's made herself nothing. And once again, even this story falls short, but it helps us to get a tiny sense of what is meant by verse 6 and 7, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus emptied himself by adding on our human nature. He made himself less by adding on our human nature. He took on this marred physical image of God that we have, and he made it his own. So Like I said, in adding our nature, Jesus made himself less. But why? Why did he do this? Well, John chapter 1 verse 14 gives us a clue. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the one son from the father, full of grace and truth. He became human to dwell among us. So that we could see his glory. We could not see his glory unless he became human. So you were the reason that Jesus became human, that Jesus made himself nothing. And this is why I love Jesus. And this is why I love our faith. Because in a world of religions in which humans are forever trying to reach God, in the Bible we discover a God who comes down to us and becomes one of us. All other faiths give us tips and clues on how to reach God, but the Bible says there's no need because he's already come down. So let's try to get a handle on what this emptying himself might have meant. What this would have meant is that Jesus, who was all-powerful and eternal, suddenly had to breathe in and out in order not to die. Jesus who was the architect of the cosmos, became a baby who kept accidentally scratching himself with his spasming limbs. 
Jesus, who was the object of praise, adoration, and worship, needed to have his poopy bum changed by a teenage girl called Mary. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. So, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him and all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? What if God was one of us? These, these words are from a song, a huge hit for Joan Osborne in the 1990s, which was one of my favorite songs of the 90s. And, and as I was wrestling with things like faith and meaning and art and all this kind of thing, this song seemed to really, really capture a lot of what was going on in my head at that time. But as I read these lyrics now, I see it clearly that these lyrics are about Jesus. Jesus was one of us. Jesus was a stranger on the bus. He did wade into our slum and he lived with us for 33 years. We see God revealed in the Bible who stooped down to raise us up. And we struggle to put words to try to explain this mystery. But here's a hymn writer called Frank Houghton who made a good effort. He said this, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. He stooped to raise us. If the queen chose to take up residence in a slum, that would make headlines around the world for a long time. But then imagine if she chose to actually die on behalf of the slum people. Those nobodies, you know, those, those, those folks who you see on the news, but really you don't even think about them, less actually care for them. I wonder if you can think about what the uproar and the outrage and the incomprehension if Queen Elizabeth was willingly carried off by a mob for execution while, while the guilty slum dwellers looked on and perhaps even took part in her, her death. Her tear-stained face, her wounds, the remnants of spit on Queen Elizabeth's clothes, looking absolutely wretched. And if you can imagine that horror then you're moving towards understanding the angels and the hosts of heaven being struck dumb at Jesus' rescue plan and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You and I, we we are the slum dwellers. We've been living in filth all of our lives. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took off his royal robes and he slummed it with us. He lived in filth but never got contaminated by it. He was tempted as we are yet without sin. He was right in the midst of our filth, our open sewers, the garbage piled high in the corners. I've been in countries where there's no effective means of of getting rid of garbage. And all through the city, in these areas of the world, there's a never-ending smell of 
rotting garbage, of rotting food. There are mounds of black bags and junk. I've met people who live on landfill sites and scrounge a living from the refuse of their fellow human beings. And this is us. There is a smell surrounding us. It's a sickly sweet smell of sin and pride and envy. And it's everywhere and we don't notice it. Because the thing about living around a bad smell long enough is that you get used to it. It's called olfactory adaptation. Odor receptors stop sending messages up to the brain. Olfactory adaptation means we get used to our own stink. But Jesus never experienced olfactory adaptation to sin. He could always smell that smell of death that hung around us as human beings. And so the fact that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, is nothing short of astounding. Because dying on a cross means that Jesus took the curse of sin for us. He died in the most humiliating way he could. Listen to these words. In Christianity, we have the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its God. But it's hard for us to understand why when we can't even smell the smell. Why was the cross such a big deal? Why did Paul write these words, even death on a cross? Now there's this lady called Fleming Rutledge and she asks this question, what is the universal world-transforming significance of the crucifixion? It is not self-evident, which means we don't automatically understand why the cross was such a big deal. It means we have to be told, it has to be explained to us why the cross was such a big deal, even death on a cross. But we know that the Bible focuses its message on the cross. After all, The suffering of Jesus Christ accounts for between one quarter and one third of all of the Gospels. His suffering is between one quarter and one third of all that we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the Bible focuses on the cross, even death on a cross. And this lady, Fleming Rutledge, has written a marvelous book called The The Crucifixion, which I would recommend you read and engage with if you want to remember or find out anew why the cross was such a horrific thing. But here are some things which she draws out in this book. Okay, crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. Which means, if you were crucified, you were considered subhuman. Not even part of the human race. You were considered another species. Have you ever felt like that? And then she goes on. Crucifixion was was cleverly designed, we, we might even say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. It was the worst. And then she goes on and says this, according to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. She also points out that in the Middle East, 
in Middle Eastern countries, there was a deep sense of honor lodged in the body of a person. Therefore, if, 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 if you had torture done to you, then you would have been forced to have these marks of shame for the rest of your life. And lastly, and this is one, one thing that she draws out, which I'd never thought about, but we, but we can't miss. It's the crucifixion, or the crucified person was forced to be his own executioner. And she explains why. He dies truly and completely alone with the weight of his own body killing him as it hangs. He, he, he suffocates because of his own weight. He becomes his own executioner. So on the cross, in the eyes of the spectators, Jesus was no longer considered human. He was the object of sadistic entertainment. He was marked with shame and dishonor as his body was tortured. And he was his own executioner as his body rebelled against him, weighing him down, even as he tried to push himself up on the nails so that he could breathe one more time. All of that. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in in full accord and of one mind. So, is there any encouragement in Christ from what Jesus has done for you? Is there any comfort from love? Do you draw comfort from the love that he demonstrated towards you on the cross? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Do you have access to all that Jesus obtained for you? Are you participating in the Spirit? Is there life in you that originates beyond yourself? A life in in you that is deeper and greater and more vibrant than anything you can create or this world can offer? Have you given your allegiance to him? Have you accepted by faith what can never be earned? Have you given up trying to reach God and instead have humbly accepted the fact that that God reached down to you through Christ? Because these three things, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, and participation in the Spirit can only be found through Jesus. There's no other worldview, there's no other, other philosophy which, which, which offers this. No other structure in this world offers you the means by which you can be encouraged in Christ and comforted in love and that you can participate with God himself. Only Jesus offers this and that's what's on offer here. Something so radically different from anything that the world's best minds and the world's best philosophies can offer. No one even comes close to to this ludicrous message that God the Son moved into the slum and died for you, a slum dweller. And I'd like to ask you something here today. Have you done something with this information? Have you acted on it? Have you appropriated it for yourself? Have you grabbed hold of it and said, be mine? Have you come up to God and said, I want this so bad, I believe. Would you give it to me? I give myself up for you. And so I don't want us to focus on verses 2 through 4. Because last week we had a great message on unity. And I don't want this to move into a behavioral modification sermon. 
You know, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, I need to be a better person. I need to be more unified. I need to put all these disciplines into place so that I can be a more appropriate follower of Christ. And I don't want any seekers here, any questioners, people who who haven't yet come to know Christ. I don't want them to leave this church thinking, I have to be a nicer person. Because that's not what Philippians chapter 2 is about. And because that line of thinking is really dangerous. Because that's about life change without Jesus. And so I want to kind of skim over verses 2 through 4. These are a great way to show us how to live in Jesus. But it's not what I want us to focus on here, here today. Instead, what I want to leave you with, and, and what, I want to leave, what I want you to leave here reverberating in your mind and heart, is this, that Jesus, the perfect and holy Son of God, became a slum dweller so that he could lift you out of the slum. Jesus let go of what was rightfully his so that he could grab hold of us. He, he released equality with God and he seized hold of you and me because Jesus could not have both. He could not be a savior for us while still sitting on the throne. He could not become a servant to all while still holding this scepter of power. If Jesus had not emptied himself, if Jesus had not made himself nothing, then we could only know him as a perfect judge. And we would not stand a chance. We could not know him as the humble savior. Jesus' humiliation was the only way that we could become exalted. Jesus needed to get down into the mud and the mire and the filth so that he could take it on himself. He took on human nature. He became God with skin on. He took this this virus of sin that had been plaguing humankind for thousands of years and on the cross he injected himself with it. And then God blasted that virus out of him and out of all who trust in him. So through this incredible hymn in Philippians chapter 2, we can track Jesus' humiliation. Down and down and down he went from, from being God in all his glory to being God who threw his lot in with humanity for 33 years to God who died, to God who died even on a cross. Down and down he went. Humiliation upon humiliation. But that's not where it ends. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this great turnaround happened. Jesus rose again and he ascended back up into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of Father God. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he brought two new things with him that hadn't been there up until that point. He brought two new things with him. The first thing he did is he brought human nature into the unfiltered presence of God for the first time. He returned to his father's presence as a human Jesus made a way for sinful humanity to come into the very presence of God himself. He is our prototype. He is our pioneer who made the way possible. He's our trailblazer. 
And as we walk in his footsteps, as we walk in allegiance to him, as we trust in him to make us right and clean, we too, and this is mind-blowing, can enter into the presence of God. Never before was there a human in heaven. Jesus was the first physical human to enter into the perfect presence of God. And as we trust in him, as we follow him, this becomes our promise. When he left heaven, he let go of what was rightfully his, all the privileges of being God. But when he went back to heaven, he went back to heaven as 100% God, but also was 100% man. And he reassumed what was rightfully his. And so we become joint heirs with him. And his inheritance becomes our inheritance. This is how it works. So firstly, this first thing that he brought into the presence of God was human nature. And the second thing that he brought was a new name. In verse 9, it says that God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every other name. And when you read that, you assume that this name that is above every other name is the name Jesus. But it's not. The name that is above every other name is the title Lord. By suffering and dying and rising again for us, Jesus assumed the title Lord. And what is our response to a Lord? We bow our knees and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this brings glory to Father God. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 through 11 is ultimately about the glory of Father God. That's what this is all about. And we bring glory to Father God when we bow our knees in allegiance to him and when we as a community, when we confess his name. So if you haven't bowed the knee or confessed Jesus as Lord, it's not too late. One day it will be too late, but it's not too late. You can do it right here, right now, because it says in the Bible, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, He gives the right to become children of God. As you bow that knee, as you utter those words, you will experience yourself being lifted out of the slum by the strong arms of Jesus. And empowered by this new life within you, you will know what it is to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be in in full accord and to be of the same mind. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What if God was one of us? He is, and his name is Jesus, and he calls us to follow him. And as we follow him, we walk this route, this journey of joy. So over this next week, what I want you to do is to start thinking about these questions. How are you encouraged in Christ? How are you comforted in his love? What does Paul mean by participation in the Spirit? How can you have the same mind that was in Jesus Christ? And lastly, have you bowed your knee to Jesus, who has the name above all other names, Lord? And if not, What's holding you back?